Welcome everyone to the Green New Deal podcast. I'm Adam Williams and today I'm joined with the Macum exiled in Manchester, Sean Benstead. How you doing, mate? Hiya, mate. Yeah, I'm good. I'm in high spirits, actually. Uh, today, my tenants union fought off an illegal eviction here in Manchester. So I've got my utmost solidarity to date, everyone who was there to see off the bailiffs and the Latin Asians. Oh, was very that a success? Yeah. 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 Oh, brilliant. Yeah, very successful. Amazing. And that went, went ahead, pal. I'm, I'm glad that was a success. That's awesome, man. Any any uh, any articles that you've wrote that you want to chat about? Yeah, I, I recently wrote um, a critique of the Labour Party's policy announcement on community right to buy yeah. uh, from the perspective of it. The, the the policy that was announced was not completely accessible to the, the most deprived communities. So, yeah, that, that that's on Clez, Clez's live blog, if, if anybody wants to check that out. Yeah, man, we'll, we'll, we'll link that to the show, no problem. I had a read of it. It was really good, mate. So well done on that. For a while now, it's become clear to me that the left is primarily split into two camps. One that is still in the process of analysing and dissecting all the ills of capitalism, of which there are of course many, and those who envisage and imagine new systems and ways of living in a post-capitalist society. But there are very few of us actively engaged in the space that connects these two aspects of the struggle. Due to this, I was really pleased to read a recent article from tonight's guests, Jodie Dean and Kai Heron, that begins with the line, transition is the problem of our times, and later proclaims that transition is revolution. Here on the podcast, we have often asked how we get from capitalism to a post-capitalist society, because we feel that this question is the one that the movement needs to answer now more than ever, and so it is good to know that others in the movement also agree with this assessment. The article is called Climate Leninism and Revolutionary Transition, Organisation and Anti-Imperialism in Catastrophic Times. Jody is a professor of political science at Hobart William Smith Colleges in New York and Kai, who is a returning guest, is a lecturer in politics at Burbeck University, London. Jody, welcome to the show. And Kai, welcome back, mate. It's good to see you both. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, of course. So guys, what a killer line to start your piece with. But the line that really stood out for me is transition is revolution. Um, and that might actually be my next tattoo because it really hit me that hard. And it, and it articulates in three words what I've been trying to, to say for the last six months. Uh, can you tell us when and why you decided that the importance of transition was going to be a key part of this piece? Yeah, so you, I mean, you said up really nicely there, uh, Adam. So the problem... As I think we saw, it was, you, you called it two camps, right? There's one camp that's critiquing the conditions that we live under, uh, which is excellent and important work. And then sometime, I think around, I could probably periodize it to like 2016, Donald Trump's election, the emergence of Corbyn, we begin to get all of these um, post-capitalist visions, right? So recent ones include like half of socialism, various versions of the Green New Deal, um, that managed to jump over the current conjuncture and imagine kind of utopian futures and alternatives, right? But that leaves open the problem of transition, exactly like you say. So how do you go from where we are to where we know that we need to be? And that gap, like that problem of transition, which used to be one of the primary concerns for the traditions of thought that Jody and I work in, is somehow absent from those debates. And so we wanted to really impress the importance of thinking about that. And I'll add in there, um, so this part, this is definitely Kai's insight. And, you know, it draws from um, other work that Kai's done in another article that we've done together. But for me, one of the things that was really important about that is that lets it be very clear why 
Kai and I in particular are arguing the way we do, why we argue in favor of a revolutionary party, why we are not um, gung-ho about abandoning the state here and now, why we think climate change is a political question rather than a moral attitude. It's because all of those, you know, party, state, and politics are necessary concepts if we are to think about and theorize and strategize how do we get from where we are to where we need to be. Yeah, that's absolutely 100% hit me. You know, like it was like a just such an amazing line, like I say, just three words, transition is revolution. Um, and it's something you describe as, you know, you describe it as a black box that lies between the present and our idealized visions of the future. Um, it's just that it's that gap into it where we're putting so much emphasis on the before and after. Yeah. But the key now, I would say, for the, for the movement as a whole is to really sort of collectively come together and try and work out how we get from, from here to there. Yeah, that's exactly it. The other thing that I think we should emphasize here is there's this issue that if you're critiquing capitalism, OK, so, yeah, there's this notion of capitalism dialectic and it moves forwards. Right. And it progresses and it takes these different turns. But one of the wages we wanted to make in the article was that some kind of revolution is going to happen. Some kind of transition is happening already, right? Yeah. And so whether we like it or not, we need to prepare for that. So we don't really have that much time <laughs> to sit. To, we need to critique and we need to sit back and do that reflective work. But we also need to act in the here and now. Um, and that, you know, the time is vanishingly small to act into that space. And that if we don't do it, other actors will, will begin to do that, um, leading to worse outcomes. Yeah, definitely. And you're right that how we depart from capitalism shapes our destination, which I thought was really interesting. And you've also put, and you've emphasized the word must be put, and we must depart from capitalism. I'm fully on board with that. But for the audience, you know, and from your perspective, why must we depart from capitalism? The primary reason is that capitalism is a system that's based in private property and private accumulation. And the idea is that it with for capitalist is that somehow having some people own things, even as the majority of people do the work and do not own things is OK. They're going to hold on to that as hard as they can for as long as they can. Now, what kind of owners are we talking about? Um, we're talking about primarily capitalist corporate owners, as well as landlords. And, and capitalist owners own oil companies, <laughs> they own banks, they own energy, other kinds of, of energy companies, gas companies. Um, they own all sorts of different um, kinds of companies for um, extracting resources, let's say, you know, complex chemicals and the other thing and the various kinds of minerals and things that we need. They are not going to just say, oh, you know, you're right. We really should just throw away all of our investments, all of our fixed capital, all of our wealth for the sake of everyone else's life. If if that were the case, we wouldn't be where we are. This things would have changed at least when Al Gore's movie came out. And that didn't change. In fact, it seems to me like he joined the other side, but that's neither here nor there. So, but I think the real the real thing that we've got to think about is that capitalists own the means of production. They own the major sources of 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 energy in our societies and they are not going to let their own benefit be in any way hampered 
by the fact of global catastrophe. So we can't con- we can't continue with them like that. I mean, just literally, it's not even it's not a moral statement. It's just like a freaking fact. We cannot continue if they hold on to everything. I think that's really well said. The only thing I want to add, this ecological component, right? The idea that if you allow capitalism to main, to control what they would call like a green transition or a green capitalist transition, to, um, you end up with, it's just not a sustainable or feasible project. It just doesn't work. So capital only accumulates by externalizing costs onto nature and onto usually racialized or gendered communities, right? That is how you maintain the profitable circuit of capital accumulation. Yeah. So if you throw some of those costs into nature, that comes back to us in a kind of boomerang effect in the form of global heating, for example, or polluted river systems, or agro, you know, intensive farming that leads to soil degradation, you name it. There is a plethora of ecological harms that this system does. And nothing, nothing capitalism has that it's offered. So carbon offsets, for example, one of the preferred methods can mitigate that. So that's the ecological side. And then we need to also pay attention to the social side and property relations, which Jody is emphasizing. So this idea of excluding racialized or working class communities or women from the means of their own reproduction, right? That is integral to this system and is unsustainable in the long term. I just want to turn to a more political question just for a second. So throughout the article, uh, which is phenomenal, you assert yourselves on the need for the left to utilize uh, the party form as a central component of a, a revolutionary transition. But the, the history of the British left is one riddled with the bones of dead or dying left parties. You know, we have the many iterations of the Communist Party. We've got the Socialist Party. We've got the Socialist Workers Party and it's a thousand fronts, as well as the historical independent Labour Party. So what needs to be different to make a left party successful and enduring within the current context? Yeah, I'll start out. This is going to be um, a little bit more abstract than the concrete British case. But I just want you to I just want to think about the kind of argument that that you're making, um, because it appears a lot and it's of the form our given parties have failed us. So, you know, we can't use the party anymore, which is sort of like saying everybody I know gets a divorce. And so marriage is out of the question or all families are unhappy. So the family is not a form at all, which can be used. Now, I don't think those really follow. I mean, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, is it's also become widespread on the left to you know criticize the criticize all of our real existing historical parties for their myriad failures and what's happened in the meanwhile the last 30 or 40 years the far right has used the party form to terrible fascistic ends and has become extremely powerful so in my to my mind there's something like it, it, the argument the argument that we need to make is something like look under the political systems that we have we need a party and then we need to try to improve it in all of the concrete ways in our concrete settings that is nece- that it will be necessary for our struggles to succeed. But to say like, oh, we failed in doing this, therefore we can't do it anymore, even under the conditions that we're living in where we need parties to achieve any kind of political power, seems to me to throw away, I don't know, what's the expression, throw away the baby with the bathwater. 
Okay, so a few things. One, when I hear about the, there's a couple of points, I guess. One is when I hear about this kind of, you know, the bones of dead parties, uh, I tend to hear that as an opportunity to learn lessons, right? Rather than, exactly like Jody's saying, rather than to throw out the form itself. So yeah, we need to go through all of those failed parties and efforts, uh, know our history, that history that is usually, you know, hidden from us. And we have to do a lot of education as a movement to relearn that history uh, and improve and build upon that. And I, I come to that because the party isn't a thing that's picked out of thin air, right? Like, okay, so two Leninists then go, we need a party that can be like, yeah, you know, that seems obvious, right? But it comes about because we do an analysis of the conditions that we're in. And I can give a very, very abbreviated version of that, right? So if we go with the Occupy movement and the failings of the Occupy movement, which was fundamentally opposed to parties, organizational forms, hierarchies, that kind of hits a buffer in the UK and a limit, right? So I'm specifically stick with the UK case for a moment since the question was that. Then Jeremy Corbyn emerges, right? And everyone floods into, guess what? The Labour Party, right? Because they recognise that some kind of institutional form is needed and that Corbyn offers potentially an opportunity to reinvigorate the Labour Party to make it work in the way that we understand it should, which would be some version of taking control of the state and implementing democratic reforms to empower local communities to have more control over their lives and to address the issues that need addressing at the scale that they need to be addressed, right? Clearly, the door's been shut on the Labour Party, I would say, as an opportunity and a space for doing that. But that doesn't mean that the party form in itself is irrelevant. It doesn't mean that it should be thrown out, as Jody is saying. And the other thing to say on this is there's something fundamentally different. We're not just endorsing the, the party. We're endorsing a revolutionary party along the lines of a Leninist tradition, right? Leninist tradition and not the Bolshevik party, to be crystal clear, right? So we're very clear in the article that we're talking about a tradition of thought that includes the Bolshevik party, Lenin's party, but also includes Amilcar Cabral and his projects, right? Or Sankara. So we're not just talking about one particular instance of a party. We're talking about an entire tradition that has within itself internal critiques of its own notions of what the party is and what it should be. So we need to pay attention to those, to the traditions that we're in, uh, and think with and, and from them. I guess I'll, I'll stop there. There's, a, there's another series of reasons why I think this party in particular is, you know, a Leninist party is an appropriate party for this moment, but I assume that'll come up in a bit. Yeah, no, definitely. I want to talk about sort of Leninism a bit in a bit more detail later on, Kai. But um, just just going back to the article, um, it's got you've got quite an interesting perspective on on, on COP twenty six, uh, which you say at one level was a complete failure, but on another level was a success. And I wonder if you could uh, potentially el elaborate on that for us, please. Yeah, I'll talk about the success part because I think that's the counterintuitive part, right? Everybody sort of recognizes that it was a miserable failure in terms of actually doing anything to address the catastrophically um, heating climate in any way that could be even minimally just, particularly to all of the countries of the, just use the shorthand of global south, who are not responsible for heating, but are um, being dramatically, dramatically harmed by it. But the reason that we decided to do this kind of, you know, dialectical move, if there's something positive about it, is because the one of the things that the cops and particularly we see it clearly in this one, what they focus on is actually transition. Right. And they look at transition in ways that they're at a massive scale. Right. The scale of states and states in an international arena and forms of, you know, it, it, 
cooperation is like too generous a term, but let's just say forms of global sort of cooperation is where they recognize the is, is the level that they recognize has to be in play for addressing something like climate change. I mean, this is so just to, at the risk of being just totally offensively crude, right? Their solution is not like for a, you know a couple of countries to change their light bulbs and for people to have a mutual aid group, right? Their solution is you know at the scale of trillions of dollars of global and forms of funding global adaptation and tradition. So they're posing the questions at a level that the left has forgotten, it seems to me, to think of, to think in. Like, we need to keep thinking in that at that level for something like climate change. Yeah. And it gives us an itinerary of things, right? So there are capitalist solutions to a series of problems that we need left solutions to. So when it comes to carbon sequestration, they use techno fixes that don't really exist yet at scale and are far too expensive. So CCS, carbon capture and storage, direct air capture right out of the atmosphere, right? We need an alternative to that. Um, we can have a debate about what that is, but first put that on the agenda. Then things like climate smart agriculture, which is incredibly energy intensive. It's a greenwashed version of a continuation of what we're already doing. So we, again, we need a left alternative to this. For even things like loss and damages, right, which is the, a very, very, very weakened form of a left demand that has been captured and appropriated, which is something like climate reparations. So you can look at the itinerary of what's, what it's, it discusses and use that as an instrument to think about left alternatives. The other would be, Jody's mentioned it, but uh, a lot. One of the major drives of a green transition of the kind that COP26 talks about is using public money to fund private investment in green infrastructure, right? But we don't. We don't want private <laughs> investment, right? It's like how do you use the apparatus of the state again to create something that's common and collective? So yeah, it, it gives us all of those opportunities to think dialectically, turning yeah. it on its head at the appropriate scale. Now, I just want to, uh, there was a part of the article, again, it, you know, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I, I've actually recently left the Labour Party um, and I've left... Congratulations and what? <laughs> well, you know what, it, it, you say congratulations, it actually, there was something inside when, when I cancelled that membership, I thought it was going to be quite a simple thing, but it was something that left me Kai. You know, and um, I can't deny that fact because I put a lot of work into the Labour Party because I joined when, you know, Jeremy Corbyn uh, was leader. Now, on a superficial level, I left because basically I could barely stand to look at Keir Starmer. Okay, but on a more substantive level, it's because I truly believe that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders were a moment in time where the potentiality of the state to take climate breakdown serious it, it was a fleeting moment, but I, I kind of feel like that's gone now. And so I'm I'm, I'm really now in the camp where I, I truly do believe that revolution is the only solution, as they say. But it seems that in your in your article that you never really believed that sort of social democracy was ever going to be up to the task. Is that is that right? Is that a right reading of it? Do you think that it's just 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 social de democracies are not really built for things like the climate crisis? I think that the way I would want to put it, it's not quite up to the task, but they are in a setting that entraps them so that even if, you know, Sanders had won and even if, you know, Labour had won and Corbyn was prime minister, everybody else doesn't go away. Right. They're the right wing forces, the capitalist forces that are also in government and also 
major players in the economy are still there creating sort of deadlocks and barriers. And so one of the issues, like I'll just now use the U.S. case, like we've got, you know, the U.S. system is just the, I think, the poster child for deadlocked politics. We are just this entrapped standoff between two parties that are basically the same, which is also completely bizarre. But but it really means that any kind of even the smallest bit of change gets immediately countered. And so it's not that 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 social democracy in the abstract is what the primary argument that we're making here, we're trying to think very specifically is like, you know, they were like, particularly Corbyn and Sanders, where it was very exciting, it brought people into politics, but we shouldn't let the fact that they failed, in fact, make us completely throw away radical left politics. In fact, it's the opposite. It should left us let us know why exactly a more radical, a more revolutionary politics is necessary. Because even if they won, it wouldn't have been the change that they promised and we hoped for. Yeah. Yeah. So I was being a bit flippant <laughs> about about labor and your departure. So I'll give you a slightly less flippant answer, right? Which is something like the way I see the Labour Party at the moment is, I don't know if you've heard of Lauren Berlant, she has a notion of cruel optimism, which is a really wonderful wow. concept. It's the idea of something that you're attached to that gets in the way of your flourishing, right? So the Labour Party for the left, I think, post-Corbyn, has sort of been playing that role. Like, we're, we're kind of attached to it, we see the opportunity and the hope, but that attachment gets in the way of us thinking of alternative forms of parties or revolution or action, right? And so I think it's useful to think like that. And then when you have separation from something you care and you're invested in for so long, there's this moment of mourning, of collective mourning, I think, that is needed. And in a way, we didn't we didn't have that, right? And so I think it's just been protracted and prolonged on the left. And we've been in this long holding pattern that hasn't been helped by COVID. So anybody who is leaving, I totally understand those, those you know, complex and fraught relationships around that. And then, yeah, I'm just going to echo Jody, right? So it's social democracy, but I wouldn't, I don't think either of those terms are, are accurate to describe the system that we're, we're saying doesn't work. So uh, it's not social and it's not democratic in that it's an impoverished form of democracy. We only get to vote periodically. We don't get to have power or say over where we work and the conditions of our work, for example. Um, so rather than the democracy, I mean, I, I'm traditional Marxist here, I would call it a dictatorship of capital. So whether or not they get into power, they're still going to be, they are constrained structurally, as Jody is saying, by a series of apparatus um, that will not allow them to deliver what we hope that they would deliver. And and just look <laughs> look at the reaction to, to Corbyn even getting close to power, right? The full apparatus marshaled against him. We need to think... Uh, it's a very difficult thing to think about what would be needed to drive through the kind of political change that we need. But my wager is to make the Labour Party the kind of party that could have imposed the forces needed to suppress the violent backlash against him that we saw in the media and by the right and by property owning classes. You would need a different type of party. It wouldn't be a social democratic party. Guess what? It would be a revolutionary party. It would be a Leninist party. I think there's also an argument uh, which, Kai, you've, you've articulated elsewhere, and, and that social democracy necessarily and essentially rests on imperialist foundations as well. So the demarcation lines between what what's possible which we, uh, in a, within a social democratic party versus a revolutionary party lies on them lines for me particularly. But I think I just want to come back to something you said initially, Kai, about the Labour Party, and I'm sorry, Jody, for bringing this back to the British politics again. Um 
But, you know, within our electoral system, we're really, we're not just constrained by our longing for what we want the Labour Party to be, but it's genuinely the only force capable of, of evening opening the door to revolutionary politics. And this is the tragedy of it for me. Um, I, I'm still a Labour member because, you know, uh, despite my crisis of faith, I'm still I'm still in that space. I don't, I don't know how we drive forward a revolutionary political program without without the Labour Party. Um, yeah. So this yeah, is there's a question this, in there somewhere. <laughs> no, there is a question, and it goes back to the article, right? We made a, one of the points we make is that history doesn't move incrementally, and I think that's an assumption, perhaps, in your ar- argument, right? That this is the only thing that's around right now, and history moves step by step with the pieces that are in play. And then, so we need to build and work with them. But this isn't at all how history works. It works by leaps and ruptures, by dramatic upheavals. You know, one minute something seems utterly impossible and the next day it's happened. And so without getting into a kind of um, messianism where we just hope for this big event where we all come together, right? And it's beautiful and wonderful and we win. um, We do need to leave space in the way that we think about what we do and how we act into the political sphere that doesn't just go, well, you know, this is our lot. This is the party we have. And since there's nothing else around, like, I guess this is what we have. Like, I, I think that kind of sets you on a, a track that I worry uh, we've spent long enough on. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. And I know, listen, I, I had a crisis. I left the Labour Party. I know a lot of m- members like Sean are having a sort of crisis and they're in the party and we're all in a little bit of a funny space at the moment. But, you know, going back going back to this transition, Kai, now... I, I'd like to talk about the second section of your, of your uh, article or the second sort of um, thrust of the article, which is Leninism. Now, no doubt you knew that by attaching Leninism to, to the title, it was kind of controversial. Or it, would, it would be deemed controversial. A lot of people would almost dismiss it simply from the title. What was it that made you call it that? Um, and what is it about Leninism? I know you've touched on it slightly, but if you want to do a bit more of a deep dive, why Lenin? Why Leninism? And what is it that's, you know, what is that core aspect of Leninism that you feel so important to um, for us to be involved in? So there's a couple of reasons. One, it's weighing in on a series of debates that have already happened, right? So people like Andreas Mom, Derek Wall have been involved in conversations with us and others about trying to think about um some kind of renovated version of, of Leninism, right? Up to the, and specifically around climate issues. So there's something there. Um, and I think one of the reasons Andreas Mom turns to it is partly for a provocation. You're right. The risk of a provocation is that people will just not, will just write it off out of hand. And that, that's a risk, but it also captures attention, right? And there's something, there is something provocative that makes people think. And then I have a series of reasons why I think the eco-Leninism is important. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move through them for you. So one is this theory of history and ruptures and trend. I've already explained this, right? There's this, the Leninist tradition is a fruitful space, I think, to think about ecological issues. And the Leninist party in particular is a useful thing. So one, it works with a theory of history that works with ruptures, non-linearity that I've already explained. We mentioned in the article how quickly, for example, the Bolshevik party swells in size when the revolution takes off, right? So, and it's integral to the whole thinking of the Russian revolution to seize this kind of ruptural moment and, and push it and move it forward. Another would be, and I'm really glad, Sean, you job my mind to get into this this register, but it's the fact that it's not just, we're not just talking about Lenin, we're not just talking about Russia, we're talking about an entire tradition of thought, and we name many of the people involved in that thought in the article. 
But it's an anti-colonialist tradition of thought, and it's a communist internationalist tradition of thought, right? So we're thinking along the lines of um, people like Amilcar Cabral, who was inspired by Lenin and by Mao, the Chinese revolution and the Russian revolution. He was an agronomist, uh, and he drives forwards irrigation prog programs, for example, with the help of the state uh, in a decolonial struggle. Or people like uh, Sankara, who has this brilliant article that we also mentioned called Imperialism is the the arseness of our forest. Situated in the Leninist tradition, he's thinking about ecological issues, right? And thinking about how to drive forward ecological questions and concerns. And then even if you did just stick to the, the Bolshevik revolution, prior to the emergence of Lysenkoism, which was a kind of a completely dead-end dogmatic biology theory that was backed by Stalin, there was a really interesting and exciting moment of uh, ecological thought driven by the Bolshevik party around conservation, right? And thinking about conservation areas as part of the revolution. So it's about digging out and recognizing that tradition. A tradition isn't just in the past. There are journals like um, the Agrarian South Network, the Agrarian South Journal, that is still thinking in this tradition, uh, supported by people sadly passed away now, like uh, Samir Amin and Sam Moyo, right? Who are thinking very seriously about this because this tradition of thought puts national liberation struggles for the global south in the foreground and it thinks about ecological issues and at least it's very it's nicely compatible with ecological issues two more to go with that it thinks at an appropriate scale jody's already mentioned this but this is essential so it thinks we can think about uh the commune or local democratic control the nation and then something like the international right that, that it comes with a pre-made notion of scales that are provocative and useful for thinking about how we resolve things like the climate crisis they need to have local empowerment but you also need an international response this tradition is equipped to do that and then my final one is that it has this theory of transition right that this is the whole piece of, of the article so the revolutionary party and the seizure of the state it hasn't it has an answer to that problem of transition that many other traditions of thought don't and sometimes consciously in the marxist tradition don't right that skew this notion of tradition entirely of transition rather I would just add um, that um, you know, I've been, kind of, let's say, writing under the banner of Leninism for a while now, and one of the primary reasons is the perspective of revolution. I mean, Lenin, revolution is on the horizon. Revolution is the, let's say, North Star or orienting point of everything that Lenin thinks, writes, and does. And it strikes me is that keeping that very clear, like noting, okay, revolution will happen. And then going from there to, and so what does that mean for us as political people, as organizers, as fighters here and now? What does that tell us? Once we assume, okay, revolution is going to happen, what does that mean we have to do? And so I think, and I think that it's the Leninist perspective that does that. And then um, one other bit to add on to what Kai is, and of course, the analysis is um, uh, rigorously anti-imperialist. Like there's no space for a purely domestic focus on this, sort of unlike some social democratic mm -hmm. focuses, um, social democratic approaches, which seem to operate as if there was no international arena. And Lenin's um, emphasis on imperialism just kind of prevents that from the beginning, right? Makes, makes, makes it very important that you always keep the imperialist context in mind. 
Quite rightly, you point out in the piece the importance of indigenous resistance to encroachments on the lands. And also, you, you've also mentioned Sankara there, but you, you do mention about him when he was in power, um, he did a, planted a million trees to try and stop desertification, word I can never really say. Um, and, and I think one thing that maybe the Global South, it's easier for them to, to understand is where the lines are of action, whereas us, like say in Britain, um, I think sometimes activists, we really want to be involved in things, but it's very difficult to know where to put our energies because it's almost like we're not quite on the forefront of, of the struggle or the forefront of, of climate breakdown where we can we can see it with our own eyes. So what, what would you suggest in regards to the transition phase for people in the UK? Where can we put our energies what can we put our energies into so that we can really start moving, moving the, the situation forward so we can get from here to there? Difficult question, right? So one, the first thing we need to do, really the hardest question you've asked so far. The first thing is to say, yeah, so on for indigenous communities or communities in the global south who are on the front lines of the effects of climate collapse and who have had the rawest deal from capital, right? Yeah. And then our inability to think about what we need to do in the global north, those two things aren't unrelated. I just want to make, I know you're not saying that they are, but I just want to make this clear. So there's theories like labor arbitration, right? The idea of, um, or super exploitation, people like the Patniks who talk about this or John Smith, imperialism in the 21st century. The idea that we essentially are paid off, many of us, not all of us, I want to be careful, but many of us in the global north have higher standards of living, more material comfort, because wealth is accumulated and extracted from the global south, right? That in a way placates us. So what we're, what we're feeling consciously when we struggle to find material conditions to fight is, is an effect of the way capital works, right? So the first step is to critique that and understand that. And I think that's important. And then <laughs> what do we do in the here and now? I mean, this gets incredibly difficult. We need to look around at the movements that are emerging where we are. Uh, I do think we need to start letting go of things that once held hope, sorry, Sean, Labour Party, and uh, looking at other <laughs> alternatives and thinking about some kind of recruitment strategy, right? At the moment, although I'm um, very critical of uh, union or trade union consciousness, as it is called, in the UK, undeniably, it, what we need to be getting excited about is the rank and file mobilization of unions against the cost of living crisis. And we need to be doing everything we can to stop this suppression of the right to go on strike that Liz Truss, for example, is trying to drive forward. In fact, I think both leaders said that they would try and make it harder for, for people to strike in the leadership debates, right? That is something for me more exciting than the Labour Party because it's going to mobilize people in their day-to-day -day life. People who go on strike make sacrifices. We know this, if we've been on strike, you give up wages for a collective effort. It's going to politicize and drive forward, I hope, political understandings of working class consciousness in the UK, more than we've so far seen, right, in, in a couple of in, in years. So I think it's looking at conjunctural emerging crises, tendencies, and thinking how we can push those forward and use them in a way that's advantageous to us. And right now, I would say that's the cost of living crisis. Yeah, so because I'm really conscious that the power of this um, article um, is that it's telling us to really be active within that space, that space that's often neglected. So before before we, we close um, the episode, it would be great to know if, you know, what are some of your 
recommendations uh, for, for, for actual literal next steps for people that really want to to be involved and to to create things and be involved in things that are pushing us forward so these are i'm going to preempt some of my shout outs but i'll do them again um i do think if you can join a union right if you can't join things like the iww whatever it is that you can join to get involved in that and helping people with cost of living crises there's an emerging campaign called don't pay uk that is about withdrawing um our bills our energy bills refusing to pay our energy bills from october 1st um there's some interesting and you know interesting questioning of that strategy but nevertheless there is that is a vibrant and active space that i think we need to get involved in and start thinking about and the cost of living crisis and energy in particular i mean it's interesting to talk about this today right it's the day that shell announced a 200 percent increase on their profits to nine billion yeah. pounds centrica who own british gas have made a 500 percent increase on their yeah. profits right while we're going to pay, face another increase in our energy bills and that's not unrelated to the the climate issue right today jacob reese mogg was on the news talking about why russia plus the cost of living crisis is a reason why we need to consider uh onshore fracking in the uk and releasing more natural gas out of the, the north sea right totally the wrong idea but this is a space of climate struggle and fundamentally to put it into marxist terms it's a struggle over uh, the workers' reproduction within capital. We can no longer afford to reproduce ourselves within the circuits of privatized capital accumulation. And that crisis is becoming more and more urgent. Any movement that puts its finger on the pulse of that, that contradiction, that ecological contradiction, and that social contradiction of us reproducing ourselves is a movement that should be backed. So I think something like Don't Pay UK is well worth looking into, and yet the union movement. So yeah, on a day-to-day, -day, get involved in those two things. I think that's really important. I mean, I would say join or build an organization or join and build an organization that the organizational component is really crucial for endurance. And yes, many of the real existing political organizations are inadequate, but they don't become adequate unless people join them and try to shape them. And it can take a while. Um, but I think that the skills that people gather, you know, people gain when they work politically in organization, um, just th they themselves become transformative of capacities. So absolute. So basically, 100% join an organization. In the U.S., the um, labor movement is also getting more exciting with all sorts of uh, victories from you know, Amazon um, warehouses to different Starbucks and others, um, sort of fast food organizations. We're seeing um, real progress there. But um, but to be honest, you know, thing, things are not um, looking super fabulous, right? I mean, we right now it appears that the ruling class is very strong. I mean, I'm thinking in part about the terrible set of Supreme Court decisions that involve limits limiting what the EPA can do with respect to climate regula regulation um, yeah. and what states can do with respect to um, gun legislation and what women can do with respect to their own reproductive capacities. That's a real fight. And so a lot of um, there is now exciting movement around, particularly around abortion, which is great. And all of these, every way that we build strength among the working class, the stronger that we are going into the, you know, um, all, you know, the, the climate catastrophe that we're facing.
right? Like we have to build large scale working class organizations to go through this so that we can counter the kinds of capitalist um, responses to the climate. Right? Capital is responding. They're responding in ways that are going to entrench capitalist power, um, the wealth of the 1% and the immiseration of the rest of us. So I think that we have to, that we've, we've got to, and I think more and more, and this is one of the things that's been exciting about this climate Leninism debate over the last couple of years. So the difference from, let's say, maybe 10 years ago or so is that it's not a shock to blame capitalism for climate change. Like that's now pretty obvious. And it's also now not a shocked thing to say that climate change is a matter of class struggle. Right. And that the more we take that seriously, the more we recognize like, oh, class struggle, then we have to build our um, working class organizations and we have to understand working class in an international way and in a very broad way, um, far beyond the kind of stereotype of white male industrial workers. The insistence you always have on this joining and building an organization <laughs> is one of the reasons I love working <laughs> with you so much, because so from the UK context, I think it's fair to say we've kind of lost the confidence uh, to an extent. We've we've not had a win in a while, like a big win. And there's this loss and this sense that maybe we, we can't win and we can't build these organizations. We've lost that confidence to do that. And this insistence on doing that and is 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 absolutely paramount. And if you have any doubt that it's possible to win or that it, it works when we organize and get into organizations. I just think you need to look at the way that capital responds to even the glimmer of a left-wing organizational project. So look at the way they respond to Jeremy Corbyn, look at the way they're responding to the threat of union organizing in the UK, right? They know that it can win when we do those kinds of things. And so, yeah, that insistence on organizing is really important. And could just ask, where does direct action fit within both your sort of worldviews and on, on this? Um, so a, a couple of things. First, direct action is a tactic that parties and organizations um, undertake, right? So it's a tactic among many tactics. And I assume by direct direct action, you're meaning stuff like blockades, um, blowing stuff up, um, occupations, yeah. seizures, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that's a tactic that that I'll, I'll just keep saying that parties can use. But we've got to recognize like direct action can have all sorts of different kinds of results, right? It needs to be integrated mm -hmm. into um, a strategic orientation, right? That something is blown up, tells us nothing, right? The response then can be like, so the state cracks down even worse or public opinion goes against the group that's bringing about the, you know, that did that blew up the pipeline because of the use of violence. So it's not that we can just automatically assume that the seemingly superficially most radical um, actions are the ones that are most beneficial to a revolutionary struggle in the long run. Yeah, Jody's nailed it. So it's a tactic and not a strategy, right? And it's a legitimate tactic and a useful tactic in certain circumstances. Um, but if the strategy that it's aiming towards is flawed, then the tactic won't get the results it needs to get. So let's give an example. Extinction Rebellion, probably a good one, right? Their direct action, when you think of direct action in climate, you'll think of Extinction Rebellion. Their tactic is direct action. Their strategy is around getting the state, the capitalist state, to act, right? To tell the truth, to have climate assemblies, and so on, right? Um, that we've written in a previous piece, the piece that prior to this in EFLUX, we engage with direct action, we engage with XR uh, directly, um, is a flawed, a flawed strategy, right? So that, that's the difference in what matters here. Yeah. 
Okay, well, for the last question, um, I'd just like you to to maybe so so Kai, when when the article came out, I got in touch with you straight away with with some of the potential criticisms that was out there, um, and obviously we had a little bit of a chat about that. But you know, I, from the criticism that you've heard of the article, uh, would you like at this point to sort of discuss why you think what these criticisms are and why you think they're they're not quite what you were trying to clarify within the article I just because I just feel again with, with the whole title with Leninismism that a lot of people are going to dismiss this without really engaging with it so maybe do tell us what it isn't and rather than what it is and what some of the criticisms that you've heard and why then they're not correct so um the criticism let me air the criticism roughly that you gave me right that's that you'd, you'd seen because I haven't seen I, I I thought everybody loved it yeah, exactly. I, I thought we'd, we'd solve this problem on, on we went. But um, was was something around, look, people see the word Lenin and then they want to refute the Russian Revolution. Uh, so you get into a deeply historicist study of when the Russian Revolution went bad and why that has um, everything to do with the Leninist party form, right? And then you just write, write off the article. Yeah. Um, and so I understand that impulse. Uh, I would just suggest that people uh, actually read the article before they, they come to that that conclusion uh, and see that we're not just talking about a specific revolution, but we're talking about a, a tradition of thought, an anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist and communist tradition of thought that is broader and larger than that one instance, right? And that is, I think, the primary criticism I've heard. Yeah. And I think it's a criticism that from people, if I'm being blunt, who haven't read those global South scholars and don't understand that when they read Lenin and Mao, they saw a, a strategy and not just a tactic and an organizational form that would help them win national liberation struggles and improve their conditions of life, right? Fundamentally, I just think it's a Eurocentric, ultimately, critique that looks a little bit to the east of Europe and then just stops thinking. Yeah, spot on. Jordi, have you not heard any criticisms at all? not at all not at one not a one brilliant well do you know what i thought it was a fantastic article i really did like i say some of the lines in it were were fantastic and I'm, i've already booked myself in for my new tattoo uh, transition is revolution uh, guys you've been great guests um again i'm going to link it to the to the show for everybody to read and i really hope now that the movement really does seem does focus on that space you know, that we've neglected for far too long now. The, the clock is ticking on climate breakdown. We really need to fill that space with, and, and transition is revolution. So thank you so much, guys. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Oh, thank you Cheers. very much for having us. This is the part of the show that is dedicated to the fighters, the healers and the conservatives of the world that are doing their bit for all of us. It's the shout out. Joda, who have you got for us this week? Um, two people. First is Tina Landis, who's the author of a book called Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism and an organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation, who's been on a book tour the last couple of weeks, really trying to push um, a sense of revolutionary optimism in a totally hot summer to say, look, there are possibilities here and now. The second shout out may be um, better known to um, audiences in the UK. And that would be, of course, Mick Lynch, um, because yes. of his leadership um, of the RMT and the possibility of a general strike. I think this is a completely exciting thing. 
Yeah, definitely. Brilliant. Kai, who have you got this week, mate? Yeah, I have uh, three. One is uh, Theo Rio Francos has a new review of Andreas Mom's How to Blow Up a Pipeline in the Nation that everybody should read. It continues this conversation around climate strategies. Brilliant. Uh, second, complementary to Mick Lynch, RMT, rank and file union workers who are going on strike. Big shout out. Well done. Keep going. We need more of that. And then third, I've already mentioned them, but don't pay UK. Check it out. So by October, energy bills in the UK are going to be around £3,400 a year, while you know private capital is making huge profits. So we need to support these groups as much as we can. Yeah, no, thank you so much for that, guys. And a big thank you to everyone that is listening. And remember, if you're helping the planet in any way, we love you, we appreciate you, and we hope you join us again next time. Take care, everyone. We'd like to say thank you to all our ACE supporters on Patreon with a special shout out to Angela Brown, Barbara Burke, Jill Burke, Guillermo Munt, and Kaylee Woods Harley. If you'd like to join these amazing people and support our show, head to patreon.com forward slash GND Media UK.